0: I'm Adrienne Elise Tarver, the director of programs and the host of the National Academy podcast, Exquisite Corpse. This podcast is a series of conversations between artists and architects who've been elected by their peers to the National Academy of Design for their extraordinary contributions to art and culture in America. These are the National Academicians, and they are at the core of the oldest artist-run organization in the United States. This is Exquisite Corpse. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Exquisite Corpse podcast. On this episode, we're going to hear from two artist friends who've also been educators for many years. I've mentioned that in addition to my role here as the director of programs, I'm a practicing artist. And though I may not work directly with students in this role, I've been an educator in various capacities my whole career. Across four continents, I've worked in small nonprofits, art centers, a large museum and universities. Before taking this job at the National Academy, I was in the classroom, and like many professors, I had to transition to online teaching at the start of the pandemic. I had to navigate tough conversations with students after the Black Lives Matter protests and during tense political campaigns. I was in Georgia at the time, so we really took the brunt of it for the 2020 election cycle. And of course, there were nerve wracking health concerns. Like my colleagues, I had to manage my own anxieties while making space for students to experience their own. When we come back, we'll get into some of the issues that our guests have been thinking about over the past two years. But first, here's our historical acknowledgement. The National Academy of Design was initiated by artists and architects to fill a void in the American artistic landscape of the 19th century. But we recognize our history has excluded many communities and cultures whose lineages and practices must be included in this country's art historical canon. Indigenous peoples, people of color, queer and non-binary individuals, and people with disabilities. We are committed to a process of dismantling the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and white supremacy. We're excited to move forward and have conversations that reflect the important questions and issues of today. This is the Exquisite Corpse Podcast. On this episode, I reached out to Michelle Grabner. Michelle was chair of the painting and drawing department at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I got my master's. She immediately said yes, which was very exciting. Mind you, at this point, we didn't have any episodes. In fact, this is the first one we recorded. I had just started to feel comfortable with teaching on Zoom, but now had to learn how to run a remote recording session. I mean, we had been talking about this and researching how to make a podcast for months, but now it was real. And despite all of the planning, I was still feeling insecure about the whole thing. What if the equipment didn't work? What if the recording platform failed us? What if I wasted everyone's time? But she was enthusiastic to participate. She knew right away that she wanted to speak with Stephen Westfall. She and Steven are old friends who hadn't seen each other since they were both in Europe before the pandemic. From their experience as artists, educators, and academic leaders through the pandemic and political turmoil, They raise questions about art's impact on social action, whether we need to agree as a society, and whether focusing on experimentation is a privilege. So first of all, thank you both for joining. Um, We're going to do a quick sound check. So Michelle, would you like to go first? Hello, my name is Michelle Grabner. I'm in Milwaukee. Thank you. And Stephen, could you go?
1: Hi, I'm Stephen Westfall and I'm in um, Germantown, New York.
0: Okay. So, welcome to Exquisite Corpse Contemporary Conversations. The structure of this podcast is such that I've asked a national academician from our 430 current membership to participate and nominate, select somebody they would like to talk to. So, I reached out to Michelle Grabner and Michelle selected Stephen Westfall. So my first question actually is for you, Michelle. What made you decide you wanted to talk to Stephen on our new podcast? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, Stephen has
2: always been somebody I turn to when I need to touch base, touch base about broad things, broad things within culture, but also things around painting, things around abstraction, um, those questions that I have. So, um, yeah, uh, Stephen, I'm going to give you a very a uh, big broad question and that is i need your guidance on how how you are thinking about criteria right now um post pandemic uh um racial justice uh issues how, what are the criteria that you're bringing into your studio now because i feel as if um i'm a bit adrift um yeah big question stephen
1: ooh that's that's an enormous question and, and it probably in, involves a really complicated answer, and I'm I'm feeling a little groggy today, so I'll try to be I'll try to live up to that. But first, I just want to say that uh, Michelle, uh, congratulations on Giannis and the Bucks. You've waited a long time, and I and I should add that that Michelle is probably my closest art confrere other than Polly Applebaum, who's also uh, a National Academy member we go back and we've actually there's a kind of triangulated in a good sense of uh, a relationship between michelle and polly and i through a number of of uh iterations of collaborative shows and um shared projects um and i don't have to get to it any further than that although some of it may come out later now it's this question of like you know post-pandemic art and abstraction and justice boy I, that's that's a that's that's such a a loaded and and, and difficult question. Uh, you know, in some ways, abstraction, which which which, in a sense, essentializes the world. Um, also, sort of, it's very hard to sort of throw a matrix of narrative over abstraction. In some ways, in the face of pressing social questions. You know, like voting rights or Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's very difficult to sort of simultaneously be abstract and not, and not at the very minimum, be symbolic. You know, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an old white boomer, and, and I'm very cognizant, at least, of of maybe the privilege that allowed me to sort of. I never was very good at telling stories. I wasn't motivated by storytelling into art. I was motivated by formal recognitions of space, uh, a kind of uh, a synesthetic response to color. And you know I'm aware that maybe that was a privileged position, but it's also for me the only position that allowed me to speak. Because if it had fallen to storytelling, I wouldn't have been motivated into art you know, abstraction, abstract painting is what gets me. And it's kind of still, um, it doesn't move in time and it doesn't explicate itself so much. It resonates. That's the way it's, that's its form of explication. So on one level, I feel like I'm continuing what I'm, at this is my own studio practice. I'm continuing what I've been doing, which is evolving very slowly geologically slowly, if you can compare that to a human lifetime, you know, certain themes and variations uh, arise and then sort of sink back into the alluvial sludge and other things emerge. So I find myself going into transition for a a new show that's coming up. I joined Alexander Gallery after my uh, previous wonderful gallery, Lennon Weinberg, closed in 2018, and I'm doing my first show with them in November, and Michelle... The space that I'm doing it in is the old James Cohen space, 291 grand on the lower east side, where you just had your beautiful show.
2: I saw that. Yes. So this
1: is yeah. <laughs> More of the of the interweaving, which just at this point, it, you know, there are no coincidences. It's beyond coincidence, it's fate. And I would say that something's happening in my work where the work is becoming uh is becoming more associative with with a certain kind of non well i think michelle and i both have, have had a kind of pop relationship with the real world and our abstraction you know pop in danger quotes and uh but one thing i find my work not referring so much to things that pre-exist in the world that correspond with abstraction or that abstraction can you know resonate with very well So, in a sense, it's becoming maybe a little bit more expressionistic and symbolistic, as in symbolism, rather than pop. You know, we'll see how that goes over. It might go over like a lead balloon, but it's just sort of where I've been, you know, and it may have, and it has a lot, well, it doesn't may, it has a lot to do with being under lockdown and COVID uh, in the Hudson Valley with, with looking at the Catskills, which, of course, was what the Hudson River School painters were looking at, you know there's no way to sort of translate that into plainer bright colored abstraction, but I'm, it's certainly influencing some of the imagery. So it's less grid based. And in a sense, even though I'm still a quasi hard edge painter, uh, more freehand, a number of the gouaches, in fact are, are visible on the Alexander gallery website. And that's Alexander with D R E for those who are, uh, not D E R. So, um, that's one thing i guess because we're both we both teach the question of making a space for the discussion of uh, pressing issues of changing the canon and admitting a broader and encouraging a broader discussion of influence and participation in the face of those who've been excluded from the canon in an academic setting that's taking place definitely in my classroom and so i feel i feel you know the artist teacher's sort of bifurcated existence, where certainly teaching is an aspect of creativity, I think. And that's sort of where maybe in a practical sense, the pressing issues of justice are being addressed by broadening the canon. And then, of course, I have a very active political life that's away from you know my abstract paintings in my studio. I firmly believe that uh, all this can be you know, you can have all these plates in the air, and the plates don't have to merge. If they merge in the air, there's going to be problems for someone like me. Uh, but anyway, Michelle, how are you doing it? I mean, you you have a kind of narrative about a kind of identity in your work that has sort of shown forth in your imagery, which poses that as abstraction and then opens up into this whole other realm of, of, of memory and, uh, and identity and location.
2: Wow, Stephen. Yes and no. I I would say that narrative that you're talking about, and I'm going to press you further because often these narratives get imposed upon us and our work, right? So if I'm in the studio, I'm really not thinking about domesticity. Though it is close by, it's something easy for, I think, the viewer to pick up on, right? So I think within the cultural world, that uh, quick shot to story a narrative um, just makes for an easy transaction. And it's one of the things that just drives me crazy right now. Um, uh, I often see it in the students that I work with, that they're not open to other interpretations of what they're doing, um, but they're really sticking to some kind of branding narrative. And it, it's it's really maddening, I, I, quite honestly. And this goes back a little bit to, I, I'm flipping it right back at you and we can return to um, what I'm thinking about in the studio or how I'm thinking about painting right now. But I'm going back to your symbolism, mm-hmm. Stephen, and, and thinking about symbolism and thinking about transactionalism and the need to get it right, right? The idea of that which is transactional is a clarity of exchange, right? That there's no ambiguity that happens, there's no something that can be pried apart and have that meaning shift on us, right? And that's really important when it comes to some of the political issues that we're dealing with right now. That that ambiguity may not best serve the political location that we're at, clarity of what's happening. But at the same time, it's not evolving visual languages, right? So if we start thinking about the profundity of figurative painting that uh, is happening right now, you know, figure painting is a genre and there's nothing, you know, it's, it's a it's a very conservative genre at that, as is still life, as is landscape. Um, but we may need to be there right now. Those genres may be important for clarity, and that may be more important than, again, a kind of active interpretation. So I'm just curious. uh, Your overview, Stephen, was so interesting, and I just flagged uh, three uh, kind of buckets, um, and one has to do with symbolism and the interpretation of symbols, and that versus a kind of transactionalism, which I think we're at now. And again, I I feel that, you know, working askew, um, working adjacent to uh, canons, I think, is as important to changing canons right now. So that's the other thing you brought up, right? The idea of um, in the classroom, thinking about canons differently, not only, um, you know, making great corrections, corrections that need to be changed and how the uh, canon was built, but actually developing that which is adjacent to those things. as a, So as opposed to going into the house, right, going into the museum and changing what is in the collection, what does it mean to build a new museum? So those are the questions I have just as I think about um, the curatorial projects that I'm doing and in teaching. One, goes, again, goes back to um, the idea of symbolism versus transactionalism or, you know, that which is abstract and highly interpretive um, and thinking about the potential of form. Again, uh, Ms. Silman has put out, uh, you know, issues of shape, but I'm, I'm much more interested in the possibility of form, um, again, as something that is, uh, has uh, power. I was recently talking to Theaster Gates about the power of form and, you know, spending a lot of time in the interpretive possibilities. Um, and then also uh, just swinging into teaching a little bit and and the virtues of teaching. I'm finding administration being very virtuous right now. You know, I would never want to be an administrator. If you would have talked to me prior to COVID, it's the thing I most avoided. And now I feel like I'm stepping into these administrative positions, whether that is at the exhibition space I run. The Poor Farm, we're now a Warhol regranting um, organization. I am now chair of painting and drawing again at the School of the Art Institute. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, what does that mean? You know, what is it? And I think I think it, it speaks to the, the why you and I are here today. And that is, you know, shifts have to be made. We're in a really interesting moment coming out of crisis, that it is our obligation and our responsibility then to be reflexive and to be able to make shifts in the criteria that we used to understand everything from you know what is a studio practice, what is invention, what is experimentation, what is professionalism. We have to rethink all of those things. And I think from an administrative point of view, I can at least start putting the groundwork in there for other people to think about. So anyways, those are kind of the things that I'm thinking about. You hit on all of uh, many of those things, Stephen, but uh I don't know, should we go back to painting? Should we go, should we go uh, right to symbolism, <laughs> transactionalism, to abstraction, to the figure? What do you think?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that transactionalism, is, as, you, as you outlined it, I'm not sure of the definition, but as, a, as you outlined it, applies, I think, to, to social action and to politics. And I'm not sure it necessarily applies to aesthetic action because within aesthetics, there is necessarily ambiguity, Otherwise, it wouldn't be aesthetics. Yes. And, but a- ambiguity in, in the political is a diluting force. But, of course, in art, that's the very stuff of reverie. So I think this is an area that abstraction trades on, you know, maybe transactionally, because, uh, you know, abstraction often, you know, particularly sort of hard edge or grid-based abstraction. Uh, there's, I mean, there's all kinds. Abstraction that employs geometry Has the look of some level of precision, and we sort of tend to equate. We tend to have a kind of transactional, as you define it, definition of our view of of precision and geometry and and exactitude and all of that. But of course, to what end? And they wind up being more like you know meditative tantric vehicles that, for the individual, can go off in any direction, depending on you know what what the individual brings to it. Um, Which I think is. Uh, you know sort of the wager of art in general i mean there's an uh, there's a seed of the abstract even in the most figurative work and all abstract work still deals with figurative questions of of embodied scale for instance so i have to assume that there's a kind of um gradient a kind of spectrum you know on or, or a sliding pole on which you know we we have these classifications i don't know if figurative work is a genre so much as a kind of classification in the taxonomic sense that allows us to bundle all kinds of work together. So a still life under the maybe the rubric of representation. But there's formalism in representation in painting uh, from, the, say, the extreme of Matisse, even though there's lots of narrative in Matisse, to um, Henry Taylor or, or Alice Neal.
2: Yes, yeah, Stephen. Yeah. I'm interrupting for a second. Help me out a little bit. I, I I agree with you. And it was two years ago now that I, I put together a show for the ICA in Maine, Portland, Maine, um, that looked at genre. And I had Henry's work, uh, you know, whole ranges of, uh, of a uh, k- kinds of um, uh, visual languages that looked at uh, still life, the figure, but I'm, I'm wondering, it's about genre, right? And isn't genre by definition, a form of agreement, right? So it may take on stylistically different approaches, but by nature, let's say the portrait or by nature, the still life, we can all agree. And then we can start breaking it down from there. And that's where I'm, I'm interested in, in um, you know, what is the thing that we approach? Can we, uh, you know, stand in front of, let's say, one of your gouaches, look carefully, deeply at one of your gouaches and agree? I mean, we can describe, right? We can talk about what red, what what kind of red that is in relationship to another color. But I guess that's where I'm, I'm starting to think about um, how important is agreement now in, you know, a culture, a society of such deep discord. Um, I don't know, that's, that's those are some of the thoughts I'm having
1: yeah i don't know i I don't know if art answers any of that i think it creates a space for the conversation to continue you know i also think that 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 it has a double life again it's not it's not really doesn't really exist in the realm of uh you know nancy pelosi not allowing uh, jim jordan on the, the january 6th committee and and the fallout from that or the creation of infrastructure Art is a, uh, you know, is a place. Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's cut off from uh, uh, pressing social questions at all. But it does. It th- at the same time, it, it offers, if only in a moment, a kind of um, um, it 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 invokes and introduces reverie. And uh, there's no place for reverie, I think, in, in mostly in the in in the realm of the political uh and and all that reverie invites in one's recognition of what it means to be a, a fully conscious individual and uh i'm not saying that we should all be uh looking at art and not taking social action at all but i i think that a complete life maybe has both uh so i'm 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 very aware of the limitations of you know abstract painting Perhaps as I practice it uh, to inveigh on uh, social questions, but that's not their point. And those actions can be taken later in the afternoon or earlier in the morning, or you know, <laughs> it's something at some other time. Than, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, and, um, you know. So it's not an. Es- and also, I don't think it's escapist because you know artists stay up all night. Uh, wrestling with with um, aesthetic questions. I don't think aesthetics are escapist. I just think it's another realm of the mind, and certainly there's 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 bridging and communication between different realms of the mind and the spirit. But you know, at the same time, you have sort of have to honor a, a, a to some degree an idea of of separateness, and that separation um, does not fill up one's day. Maybe yeah. Um, you know, it, it's funny that you're back as the chair at the the Art Institute. I'm the, the currently the undergraduate director at Mason Gross, and I'm going to be doing that for the next three years. And uh, I'm cognizant, very cognizant of our position in relation to, you know, as a public school, um, state university, uh, and our role in um, opening doors for the, you know, uh, the working class population of New Jersey. I think. Many, 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 many years ago, Rutgers was invited to join the Ivy League, and Rutgers said, no, no, our mission is to the people of New Jersey. And we do take students from outside the state, and that's because our schools become something of a draw. But we're still opening those doors and uh, being enriched by their participation of, you know, brilliantly talented working-class students from uh, uh, the most diverse range of backgrounds in the country, I think. I think we're Supposedly, if not the most diverse school, though, um, uh, in terms of um, ethnic background, uh, up among the most diverse schools, and I think intermittently we are the most diverse school. We flirt with the top, and that diversity is a is a political intention and a, our a social intention and a, and a statement. And then w- we try to shape a canon. You know, a canon is not in, in, uh, inviolate uh uh it's a living thing and we try to shape a canon that is inclusion uh, inclusive and we of course we're finding all the time all these wonderful artists that uh have been there all along you know many dead uh who should be in the canon and you know who've been excluded because maybe their background suggested that they they didn't appeal to to the um buying to the collector class at that time. But now we have an emergent, you know, broader collector class. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> it's such a broad question.
2: No, it's it's leading. Uh, I, I, I wanna bring to you a, a, a funny, uh, not surprising, but a, a, a maybe a bit of an uncomfortable conversation I had last week, maybe the week before I had a friend who's working with an architectural firm, really looking at institutions and how institutions, what their built environment uh, is, how they can be more inclusive. you know, you know, that conversation, most institutions are having those conversations right now. Um, and, uh, the poor farm, the exhibition space, um, that I run in rural Wisconsin was a case study, uh, with Next Haven. And it was just funny talking about our values that, that that we come, you know, both, uh, Next Haven, you know, I, I worked with Titus when he was at Yale, uh, you know, the group of, um, recent, um, Fellows or artists and residents are showing at James Cohan right now that's the gallery that I show at in New York so we're participating on the same kind of cultural landscape when it comes to professionalism but where the poor farm is built on you know experimentation um a place like Next Haven is really doubling down on professionalization for artists giving artists and again in, in, in next haven um black artists brown artists the opportunity to participate in um an economy um, as well as a professional landscape but you know in the kind of uh the, the ways that you know we understand it or we have taught our students in the past um, again this kind of access and really kind of doubling down on that as opposed to again as what I was saying before thinking adjacent instead of you know going through those doors you know building something different and I'm just I, you know i'm, I'm it's a very, I keep thinking, well, then is experimentation uh, a privileged place, right? Am I standing on a place where I can, you know, not be outcome driven, right? So even the language that Next Haven uses for their artists and for their organization are things that, are same kind of language that I use, uh, you know, in the office at the School of the Art Institute, but as somebody who runs um, an alt alternative, not-for-profit space I recoil from. I want to see a different kind of structure. So no uh, um, outcome-driven performance. That's just one example. So I then I ask myself, is that not to have outcome, not to think about pathways for artists uh, to uh, step into a professional world? Is that a position of privilege. I'm really kind of thinking about, you know, what experimentation can be. I'm confused about that. Do you have any
1: thoughts? I'm about to write a memo to all the uh, uh, undergraduates that uh, they have to start labeling their images when they apply for things like scholarships and give the dimensions. They have to start labeling it as, as height proceeds width because you know that's that's how things are that's how things are reproduced in museum catalogs and stuff, and it just drives me crazy that they're that that seventy to eighty percent of them do width precedes height, maybe that's professionalism um but uh it's like, get with the program, because when you apply for a scholarship, they never
2: they they. it's because young people never had to put those dimensions on the bottom <laughs> of a little slide. Uh, that's the uh, that's the reason everything that's, uh, you know, a digital notation is
1: right. It's time time. Somebody stepped in, you know, <laughs> so I think a, a little professionalism probably goes a long way and, and uh, nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, experimentation is endemic in, in art. I, you know, I can tell you a story about, uh, icon, you know, the Church Fathers and, and icons in, in uh, early medieval icon painting. You know, painting itself was was very strictly prescribed. You had to do this, you had to do this, you had to do this um, uh, within the, the Holy Roman Empire. And the Church Fathers were freaked out when somebody painting icons started painting hair. You know, in in a in a contemporary, uh, you know, all the all the all the poses were exactly the same, but they started, you know, painting combed hair or or the hair of uh, the hairstyle of uh, that, that related more to contemporary <laughs> at that time life, uh, because they saw it as an introduction. And as soon as you introduced any element of fashion into the sort of timeless world of of the icon you were setting you know you were setting time in motion and they were trying to stop it with all the fury of the angel and angels in america they were trying to stop time and and you know maybe modernism proceeds from that moment you know when somebody when some guy uh, it was a guy uh, uh, started you know started noticing that people wore their hair a certain way and and just for the hell of it, so to speak, put it into an icon painting. And it was noticed immediately by the thought police, by the art police. Uh, And and you had your, you know, maybe one of your first controversies. And, you know, it all proceeds from that. I don't think there's any situation where a student, where a body of students or a body of artists, given a tradition, aren't going to innovate. You know, uh, you know, just based on their own predilection, temperament is is a huge motivator, and and we, we long ago decided that art was a region for temperament to express itself, and uh, um, so here we are. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, Stephen, I I, I want to take that and uh, stretch that into um, uh, my past week in Guadalajara, where I spent. Uh, many days with the Orozco murals um, mm. and how extraordinary uh, the scale of those murals are, um, and the the visual innovation. Um, so we're, we're you know how we think about uh, again a, a kind of political narrative, political narratives that we see now, um, but just thinking of you know the the many kind of architectural spaces in which Orozco uh, you know brought his. Politics and uh, and in each one of those cases, responding um, spatially or with a different kind of humor, um, you know, still underscoring you know oppression um, and what oppression looks like, I'm trying to stretch your um, your icon painting into Orozco's big mural paintings to a certain degree, um, and thinking about um, you know change and innovation. Um, yeah, yeah. Have you have you been to Guadalajara, Stephen? Have you seen those Orozco murals?
1: No, I've only been to Oaxaca. I haven't seen the Orozco murals in in Guadalajara. Uh but uh you know, in a related vein, uh my partner Daisy and I uh, are going out to San Francisco next week, um fully cognizant of the surge in the, in the virus um in a planned trip to see my parents uh, who are in their mid 90s who I haven't seen since the beginning of uh the, the lockdown and the diego there's this giant diego rivera mural that's that's going to be uh that's on view yeah after restoration at at uh, sf moma so we're very excited about seeing that and that's a plan so when i think about diego rivera and orozco you're getting a very different temperament when you're going when you're toggling between uh, Rivera, who comes often in some ways as a kind of a classicist versus Orozco or Siqueiros. That's a, that's a really interesting, you know, the sort of school of mural making from that period is, is, is actually stylistically very wide.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and spatially. Oh my God. Yeah. So Adrian, you were going to drop a question in there.
0: Right. I like the flow of your conversation. I didn't want to interrupt the flow. I, I, it's such a, it's so nice to hear, you know, artists who are colleagues who already have their own conversations outside of this kind of venue, continue whatever conversations you're having, you know, privately or in other ways, but it, it makes me wonder in some of the direction of the conversation there's been so much um focus sort of on large outward issues societal issues issues that come up as educators and and your roles as sort of representatives of these institutions um whether it's your nonprofit or the schools you represent and i'm just curious you know in your role as an artist as in your relationship as friends and colleagues you know artist colleagues um Do you feel that some of these issues that are coming up now are largely affected by your roles as educators or by the last year and a half and sort of the the ways that um, conversations have been um, brought up and focused um, through, you know, protests and pandemic and um, all the sort of social issues coming up? Or are these conversations or issues that have been percolating with you individually or, you know, in Conversation to friends for a long time that just sort of shift and change as the world is shifting and change changing
1: I met Michelle at Northwestern right
0: yeah yeah uh-
1: well I was going to say northwestern was was a was a program that was very invested in kind of somehow abutting questions of aesthetics with questions of, of social consciousness you know uh, in in you know in the guise of theory. You know what was then called theory. And Michelle was a graduate student, brilliant, and we we began a conversation that uh, uh, it felt like, as I often feel with Michelle, like uh, we'd be talking to four in the morning, um, uh, you know, given our druthers. And so I think that 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 some of these questions, these anxieties for for me, I can't speak for Michelle, but for me, I'm very much aware of them, and I've been aware of them for a long time, which is why I think that as a kind of uh, um, wink and a nod, as a form of irony, a gentle form of irony, my work has often alluded to the real world in some way under the guise of abstraction. And that's something that takes place in in a kind of another idiom in Michelle's work, but I'll let, I'll let Michelle speak to that.
2: Stephen, I think uh, something that I, I, I value so deeply when we get the opportunity um, to speak, and you're evoking Northwestern, and that was a very long time ago, um, very long time ago, many decades now. Um, <laughs> but we recently had a extraordinary opportunity to walk through the Kunsthalle Basel together and to look very deeply at individual paintings and
1: just before the covid hit yeah
2: yes yeah yeah thank you for that it was i think december december before 2020 so it must have been december uh 19
1: 2019
2: yeah it it's a highlight um for me because again the deep looking at individual paintings and and pulling out moments or developments of space, um, or passages of color contrast. Um, and to look that deeply with somebody who I know also looks that deeply is, um, uh, it's very special. And, uh, I always appreciate, um, um, those conversations. Um, and when we get the opportunity to be together in front of artwork, uh, I think it's extraordinary. Um, you know, and then the case of talking more, Broadly, you know, questions around uh, uh, professionalism. What should professionalism look like? What are the ethics of teaching right now? Um, what is brought to the fore? I often think that being in—I I don't want to say this is an apology, but you—you you allow me. To see in my own assessment um, and interpretation of culture, um, you allow me to see that from a different perspective. And that perspective is actually not coming from a center, right? So you're, I'm talking to you from Milwaukee. I teach in Chicago. We're in the heartland. And that um, I think for the most part, um, you know, it's the same condition of values, but they may align themselves slightly different. And I, in my conversations with you, I'm highly aware of of that. Um, and in some cases, I f- feel sheepish uh, ab- about these uh, interpretations or insights that I have about culture at large, about priorities, about value. Um, but at other times, I can see that I feel uh, as if. I can see blind spots that, uh, for instance, you know, the entrenchment of New York um, uh, around culture and painting um, sometimes can't see. So that's another reason why I check in with you, um, because I may feel sheepish, but you never make me feel shameful (laughs) from this perch.
1: No, no. So so, you know, we haven't really I've alluded I've alluded to my own imagery, Michelle, but you haven't talked a lot about your imagery and your imagery your things that are paintings and things that are like paintings uh became very pronounced in this last show of yours i'm thinking of the um of the wonderful jelly jar circles and i think you've had a, a, also an interest in in sculpture and and objecthood that has really come forward in the last you know, several years and it wasn't, maybe it started as an interest in tactility, but it broadened into an interest into sort of embodied form. You talked about form versus shape before. And is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, I I think so. I think it's, it's even, um, if we step back even a little bit farther, uh, beyond uh, thinking about, you know, sculpture, but actually, um, organization and arrangement, right? So what you're talking about with the cast, uh, jam tops, um, some of those elements on those pieces of kind of highly polished, beautifully stained wood, which makes references to cutting boards. You can kind of all add that up to a kind of domestic situation um, or thinking about, uh, I think about Daniel Spory quite a lot, um, but all, really thinking about arrangements, right? Um, not, quite literally still lives, but how patterned circular forms exist on an organic, uh, you know, um, more translucent form. If we think about, you know, wood actually holding light to a certain degree. Um, but really thinking about arrangements and the power of arrangements. I was very fortunate to have a a really great phone call with Thaddeus Mosley, um, you know who is in Philadelphia? Who is you know working on his wood sculptures? He will be ninety five in uh, what a couple weeks? He said, and really thinking about balance and counterbalance. That was a most extraordinary conversation. Um, and you know what is discord? Where is discord now? So really thinking about organization of uh, patterns, pre-existing patterns, those patterns that are found. Thinking about where authorship lies when one is appropriating a found pattern or one is alluding to again, um, you know, something that's uh, familiar or vernacular. Um, you know, those things that you and I uh, share, as you were mentioning earlier in relationship to pop, I don't know if it's as much pop as it is. Um, uh, well, you said it quite nicely, but, um, a kind of acknowledgement of that which is pre-existing and the translation of that. So, yeah. So, so, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, the oil paintings that are uh, rearticulating articulating um, a burlap weaving, you know, it, if, you know, for me, it's about, you know, what is predictable? What is sustainable in pattern? Um, how can, you know, so these are all formal issues. But again, formal issues for me are always about order and order. By nature, is always going to lead us to a kind of political scenario, right? Which wh- what is in discord? What is harmonious? Um, what is um, you know askew? You know what is balance? So that you know, gives me a lot of latitude when it comes to thinking about, you know, not just painting or not just sculpture. That's not what I'm really thinking about. It really is about um, form arrangements and what those arrangements can elude to um, uh, and how they can reflect or push at, um, you know, the conditions of the world that we're living in.
1: Yeah, that's, that sounds, so it it allows you to be in this kind of space where you're playing with formal recognitions, you know in a in objects that that have a history that go all the way back to icon painting in terms of their formal address you know which is to say the you know the 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 dense plane of an icon you know painted on wood is is certainly in the dna of the wood that you're inserting those uh, jam jar lids into with all the care and the space giving that 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 implies, and they're sort of head torso size, same thing as an icon. But obviously they're so far you know they've passed through the extrapolation from coming out from under the the weight of the body of of say, having to totally devote yourself to the uh, to the narrative of a theocracy to um, the everyday life of Corbet and and Cassat. And uh, and then through abstraction to this concretization of kitchen life, you know, uh, for a suburban mom, and that's a, that's a that's a um, that's an arc that that someone can actually it, it doesn't actually have to be pointed to with an essay uh, to discern if you if you are raised in the culture of art which. I still would maintain as available to anyone, I mean, obviously through school and stuff like that, but uh, the preciousness of those things, and I don't mean precious in the effete sense, I mean precious in the sense of they're rarefied and intensified spaces, Fra- You know, with, with recognitions that you can, as in a barbershop mirror, you can go back in time and see various stages of similar iterations Um, existing, and they exist at the point of the spear of that, of time's arrow, for instance, as it's coming towards us, so that your work is just sort of the latest recognition of that concentrate, of what's available to that concentration of space.
2: Thank you for that. I absolutely agree. Uh, But don't you find it paradoxical that, let's say, the, um, the professional art world gives me an, a narrative when all I am doing is drafting off of that lineage you just beautifully lined out. And that is sometimes, ah you know, I understand the use value of that when one needs to create monetary value around let's say work that does that or can't one you know so this this is one of the, the the thing that's most interesting to me and this is uh you know within this field that you again delineated um is that which is found and you know uh ken goldsmith has made a, a life's work of appropriation um but starting to think about where authorship is in the, in, in all of that or narrative or branding i, I find it very very strange um you know, I, I just feel as if you know I get to, and I, I, again, hugely grateful for and committed to working within um, the, the rearticulation of uh, again uh, this this lineage and we could create it many times over uh, that you just uh, you know created uh, you know into the kitchen uh, you know got us back into the kitchen, um, but. Uh, yeah, I just find it so strange The you know, I, I find it a, a reality um, within the economic uh, uh, structure of, of the art world and how it needs to, um, uh, you know, make uh, value. But, you know, the best I can do is, you know, use it um, because it's just not a truth. It's just not a, a, a truth that I feel comfortable with. Um, and that I'm not even talking about some kind of crazy Midwestern uh, uh, thing that often I uh, gets laid over. Anyways, I, I guess I'm just talking about authorship, in
1: short. Yeah, I, I don't have a i I don't have a problem um, if it's if it's um, if you know if the ironies are exposed. By the way, as I'm talking, I'm looking at a burlap Michelle Grabner to my right. It's on my wall here. Uh, I I uh, you know artists have uh we are as as much as the icon painters were immersed in a theocratic society and a feudal society where painters had a kind of guild like relationship to their craft we are immersed in a capitalist society trying to figure itself out before it burns up the planet <laughs> in a arena of discourse where virtually anything can be introduced if you know and maybe subject to round ridicule but uh it's a it's a much more at least for now uh, a more openly discursive society—that's part of our uh, myth of—that's of, of, part of our self-congratulatory myth of our present right now—that may distract us from other pressing problems. So it seems to me like the, the whole gallery system is just a—you a, a, know—a a natural byproduct of this immersion in capitalism, but it does have some useful sort of side effects. You know, galleries are basically free viewing areas for that discourse to take place that anybody can walk in off the street in most galleries. You know, so in a place like New York or Chicago, where there are a lot of galleries, uh, you can start at one end, uh, you know, at the beginning of the month and get to the other end by the end of the month and start all over again the following month. And if if you like looking at art, you become sort of aware of the tropes and of, a kind of meme discourse is always underway in relation to a, a broadening awareness of, of the various tropes that hang out in the neighborhoods of various genres, <laughs> and at the and, and at contested border stations. It's it's a it's a really interesting ongoing sort of visual discussion. And the other thing that the galleries provide is a kind of uh, theater for that you know a clear space for those for that to exist. And uh, I don't see really too much wrong with that, you know. Maybe I, as a kid, I just thought it was wonderful, and it certainly was an escape from a lot of other things. Um, I think m- my work certainly participates in that kind of discussion in its rather quiet and staid neighborhood of of quasi hard edge abstraction. I say quasi because I don't use tape, and everything's kind of janky and hand done. Um, <laughs> even though it has the look from a certain distance of being something else, I don't know. I forget who the author was. Um, someone at the at the turn of the century, a century ago, was talking about the difference between Shakespearean irony and Chaucerian irony, and the the difference was for this uh, liter- literary critic that Shakespearean irony undercuts, and Chaucerian irony reveals. So Shakespearean irony is sort of leads to a certain level of cynicism. I mean, the, the, the infatuation, the love in Shakespeare is the love of language. And, and, and Chaucer, he genuinely loves the characters. He loves the even the, the moral principles that the characters are supposed to represent. Um, and so his irony is gentler. So when we say irony, it's, it's important to, to sort of make a distinction between a kind of caustic, acidic irony and a kind of the gentle irony that allows us to get along with our family members. And uh, I'm sort of very interested in that latter form of irony as a, as a, as being part of that, that series of overlaid recognitions that I was referring to before. And I love it when I experience that.
2: Can I ask you, Stephen? Did you pick up, or have you read um, "Theory of the Gimmick: Aesthetic Judgment and Capital Form" (capitalist form)? Have you seen that?
1: No, no, no. Theory of the Gimmick. Would you email it? Would you email me a link to it?
2: I will. I will. It's aesthetic judgment. And capitalist form, and it speaks to the same uh, 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 variety of uh, what um, you're talking about between Chaucer and, and Shakespeare right now. The, the same kind of uh, kind of criticality and the differences, subtleties. Um, you know, the the my only problem, and I've been teaching it, is uh, getting over the idea that gimmick or gimmickry is uh, by nature something to recoil against. Right. So the author, she is, uh, I believe, in the English. Department. This is where aesthetics uh, and aesthetic studies have ended up. Um, they've seem to have migrated out of philosophy programs into um, English departments. Um, uh, is at University of Chicago. Um, Nai. How do you, how do you pronounce N G A I? Do you know who I'm talking about? She has uh, her other text is Aesthetic Categories, as you were talking. I think earlier, Stephen, um, you know, there's been a kind of a shying away of aesthetics recently, aesthetic discussions, aesthetic studies, uh, but she's taking it head on. And the idea uh, some of, of some of her looking at what is a gimmick is that which is. Um,
1: oh, it sounds very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's out of time, um too much it's either it, it's out of time either or thinking about labor, too much work, undercooked, underworked. Uh you know, uh, by uh all effects um you know, all art uh deals with a kind of relationship to uh, uh the gimmick uh structure as she uh defines it, but it really is just getting over and having a relationship and and, and being open to you know, the definition of what a gimmick is.
1: That sounds really interesting. I'd I'd be very curious to know about it. Can I tell you what I'm reading and teaching? Yes. Um, I think I'm going to teach... Okay, so what I'm relied upon in my department uh, Mm -hmm. uh, with various levels of interest expressed by the grad students um, is uh, to be the guy that sort of tells them about icon painting under the Holy Roman Empire that, you know, sort of like... The, the deep structure of, 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 the development of European mm-hmm. painting. And I, and I, and certainly I love that. And, and uh, so I don't want to disregard that while I'm trying to broaden the canon, uh, you know, as best I can. And uh, the, the latest book in that, that I'm just loving is uh, uh, T.J. Clark's Heaven on Earth, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. And uh, it's really, it's discussion of, of four painters, Giotto, uh uh bruegel the elder veronese Poussin, and veronese and their depictions of of heaven or uh, that moment where the the imagined uh life to come uh lands on the planet often in the lap of someone looking out a window or something Uh it's just beautifully written and really smart and gets to this question of of here and hereafter which I think still bedevils us in terms of of how we're facing the moral dilemma of existence. You know, how much do we put into uh, the here and now and how much do we put into this kind of imagined space? Um, and then the other the book, uh, which is very much about ex- expanding the notion of the canon, is uh, which I've been teaching for a couple of years. and every time I read it, it just uh, expands even further and it's an impassioned argument for uh, ambiguity and abstraction. On the part of a of a African American theorist is uh, Darby English's 1971 A Year in Color, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. And it describes uh, to, uh, it describes uh, a number of of shows uh, of of African American abstraction uh, abstract painters that um, uh, sort of landed in the face of this call a political action in 1971, and how. It was, and and the controversy it was it, it met with in the um, uh, African American community, you know, and it's, it's a very complex and beautifully, carefully written uh, book, and it just it it grows in my mind in stature every time I teach it, or teach out of it, so to speak. So, those are two books, and that uh, that last one was recommended to me by Cameron Martin.
2: Uh, Stephen I'm, I'm on my way to Umbria for four weeks Oh I hate you and have I'm, I told
1: you I hate you like with the heat of a thousand suns
2: <laughs> Well, I'm going to take heaven on earth uh, thank you Thank you uh, you know uh, the uh,
1: I'm really jealous yeah
2: no it's um thank you for pointing me uh, uh, to that Clark book
1: yeah yeah and the the opening chapter on Jada was astounding.
0: Um, I'm so happy to have a reading list from you guys and um, I will confirm the written names of everything because I would like to add it with the details of the podcast so that people can read, find these books um, and any sort of other comments or links you want to add to it. Um, I do want to sort of switch gears a little bit um, as we find our way towards the end of the conversation. One of the things you brought up earlier, Michelle, which I think was really interesting and actually points to a lot of conversations we're having about the National Academy internally, or sort of the idea of a of a national academy, something that represents America, American art is this idea of do we need to agree? And you brought this up in relationship to looking at a painting and we can describe it, but do we need to agree? And you two are members, uh, you know, currently 430 something living academicians, of uh, you know, regard in their fields of art and architecture that don't necessarily agree but are part of this community. And as, you know, Americans, we are part of this community that doesn't necessarily agree. I'm curious, you know, as we look at what it means to be a part of a national academy, what your thoughts are in relationship to this idea of um, sort of community and agreement and collective.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in, but I'm take me a while to kind of sort through that, um, very important question. But first of all, you're asking the question that, um, is, uh, uh, delights me and is actually an obligation in culture right now to ask those bigger questions. Um, but I think with such diversity in representation, um, uh, of the artists who belong to, you know, the organization, uh, really kind of stepping way back and finding where those common values are. And I think we share a lot of those common values, um, you know, whether it's, you know, belief or the tethering of art to, uh, democracy, let's say, uh, at its kind of broadest. I think that is uh, a good place to start. Um, you know, a belief in the imagination, the individual imagination, um, or the cultural imagination. So finding out where those commonalities are and then kind of walking it in and start building indifference. That's, that's a great thing. Um, but I would like to hear what Stephen has to say. I'm sure he won't be as, uh, um, Broad-brushed as I am on this one, <laughs> well,
1: I think the biggest question facing the academy right now is is the question of of diverse broadening and diversifying the academy membership across disciplines. I, you know, uh, when the academy started, uh, it was male, it was all painting, even though it was called the Academy of Design. I think that was back in the day when when art was sort of a trade still um, in the early, mid 19th century, you know, now we've added photography and, you know, aspects of performance and sculpture. And I guess sculpture might've been in there early on. And certainly uh, women have become members and we're trying to, you know, add, uh, we've added a a lot of African-American members, our lack of African-American, a relative lack of African-Americans before a few years ago was a tremendous discredit to the academy and i think we're trying to address that now the big obstacle is is as i you know is as is the case with all academies is is that some you know is participation you know when people get old and they kind of withdraw from the world as sometimes happens as one ages um they you know they withdraw from their sort of citizenship participation in the Academy itself, and they don't vote on new members. And I think there was a, a point where the Academy was was a kind of maybe more a consolation prize for not having a, a, a blue chip career or something among certain figurative artists who are, uh, I mean, I'm, that sounds really harsh, but uh, there's an aspect of truth to this. Uh, you know, So Friends were nominated and it, it became very conservative and hidebound and kind of like an exclusionary outpost. And then, under the uh, you know the prodding of people like Marshall and and others uh, uh, who were officers at the academy, I think in the last 15, 20 years or so, we've you know there's been this push to sort of really open it up and growing. That's been gaining momentum. But I was very disappointed in the. Um, election results this year I, it felt like i think probably let, uh, maybe no more than 100 academy members even participated out of the 430 which is a number that you cite adrian and uh that's that's really alarming and i feel like if the academy is is going to continue to do its i mean that sh- that that you that america show that has been traveling around the country is a beautiful show and a beautiful catalog and it really shows what the Academy is capable of. And with with this expanded constituency and membership, is going to be capable of great things in the future, but it really depends on the particip- participation of all the membership. And maybe even the voting laws have to be revisited so that uh, percentages to admit new Academy members are uh, are drawn specifically from the members, from the percentage of the votes cast, not from, extant membership, but something's got to sort of continue to loosen. I think within the academy bylaws to uh, so that we can even sustain such a membership, it just in numbers. Because without that participation, the academy is going to shrink. So that sense of crisis, I think, you know, that you've been talking about, Michelle, actually uh, passes from larger aspects of culture into the into the specific institution that we're here sort of under the umbrella of right now, you know, we'll see what next year brings.
2: Yeah. I want to follow up on that just because I'm seeing, sensing a pattern here and we're talking about relative lack of participation, let's say in voting. What does that suggest? It suggests to me that, um, the other members, I don't think it's apathy. I think it is about their attention being pulled into not, uh, not the Academy an organization that, um, uh, is about the power of coll- uh, the collective power of artists, period collective power of artists, but thinking about other institutions or other kind of professional demands on artists, um, that prevents us from seeing again, the value of, uh, the Academy and again, the, 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 the collective power of artists. We're, we're not valuing that, um, as, as ourselves. We're valuing something else, our, our attention, or we're being distracted. We're being pulled into other systems. Um, and that is concerning to me. And and that is why, Stephen, I'm so happy that you had this conversation with me because we have to, you know, hopefully, um, you know, rethink where power is located for artists, all artists, Um, you know, how we think about the things that we do outside of those traditional criterias, um, you know, being entangled in, um, uh, you know, art world finance, economies, institutions, collections, um, but thinking about something else. So anyways, I'm just, I'm just thinking that it's all of one piece. I have to, you know, say that I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, we're going to double, down on a kind of pre-pandemic, you know, hyper uh, uh, normality, which was built around, uh, you know, uh, fast exchange um, of all kinds of uh, 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 whether that's, uh, again, financial or whether that's just about the circulation of work. And that concerns me. I think this goes back to thinking about uh, administration and how uh, the role of administration can play with temporality, slow things down, ask those questions about how, you know, we think about, uh, who we are, um, and who we are in relationship to other organizations. Um, and, uh, you know, really think about where value is and where power lies. I think that it's it's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's special about the National Academy is that the power does lie within the artists. The artists are the ones who created it. They're the ones who shape it, who induct new people, who keep it sustained. And so, um, I'm so grateful that you guys agreed to to speak to each other and to be on the podcast, um, Stephen. I have a bit of a question for you. But Michelle selected you. If you were to select anybody from the National Academy other than Michelle to speak to, who would you want to speak to in a conversation?
1: Well, I've already said that that the other close, very
0: putting you on the spot a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I've already said that the that the other really close artistic confrere of mine besides michelle is is polly and the three of us polly Applebaum, and the three of us have a uh, uh have a sort of an ongoing conversation with each other as it stands so casting outside of the circle of someone like polly let's see there's just very wise and smart people i um i i, I i'm so glad that charles gaines is a member of this academy he's one of the uh, i think he's just one of the most brilliant pairs of feet walking the planet right now. I was very happy to support his nomination of Gary Simmons, who uh, was an art history student of mine when I was still an active alcoholic teacher of art history at at the school of visual arts. (laughs) And, uh, uh, so, so, and I had the great good fortune of, of, um, of listening to Charles as an undergraduate student uh, at UC Santa Barbara uh, in the College of Creative Studies when he was a visiting artist. So he's someone that I, you know, would be an amazing person to talk to. And then, um, yeah, David Humphrey. I mean, the, the guy is just, you know, he's a great talker and uh, and full of uh, just ideas and life. Uh, but, you know, there's many, many people I cherish. Elena Sisto deep, uh, thinks very deeply about um, the formal DNA of painting, whether it's figurative or abstract. And I think, you know, a lot of the members of the, a lot of people who attended the New York Studio School during that sort of magical time when uh, Mercedes and Nick Carone were there and and they were working out of the, uh, you know, that kind of um, curriculum uh, and Gustin was there uh, and very importantly. So there's a number of people. I think Gary Simmons is now a member of the academy too. I'd love to catch up with him. <laughs> also brilliant. So, there's a number of there's a number of people.
0: I'll work on making these conversations happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't just think of one, you know, that's what, you know, it is a community and and it's a, a you know, when we get together and go out to dinner after the nominating uh, of ceremonies, uh, after, you know, not the induction ceremonies, like I remember 2 years ago I was out with uh, so many members of the, you know, and it was just Barbara Takanaga, and these are just like wonderful people, you know, and and uh, all worthy of of a good discussion.
0: Well, again, thank you guys so much. Um, I had I'm I'm kind of sort of half going to ask this question because you are absolutely allowed to say like we're done, we don't need to talk anymore. But one of the things I was um, curious to ask you guys is what you feel you don't really get to talk about, about yourself or your work or like what you don't feel is asked, you know, it's especially, I think you a little bit touched Michelle on this idea that there's like a, a narrative that's perpetuated and you kind of fall into the narrative to sort of frame your work. But what do you want to talk about? Like, how do you want to talk about yourself or your work that you don't feel is maybe often forefronted in conversations about you or your work? Stephen, you want to, you want to get at that first?
1: Oh gosh. I've been very fortunate, I think, um, that uh, people who've written about my work have really do seem to get it. I remember um, just being blown away by a sentence that Amy Silman wrote in a catalog essay for my work many years ago. I think it was in 2005, 2004, 2005, I guess it was, where she wrote a sentence that was, uh, Westfall is positively gleeful when I suggested uh, that his paintings were paintings of paintings, the exact size of the painting being made, you know, to be sort of seen like that and to be understood from a point of sympathy that, that my work is in painting is, is, is a fumbling guy's praise of painting with a capital P is, uh, uh, I, I felt seen, you know, and, and understood, um, so i i i i don't know i don't know i you know i i would mo- you know <laughs> i it's good that that it that it doesn't come for me because it would mostly be a complaint about how hard everything is and how there's not enough time to paint <laughs> you <know? laughs> um you know i'm but i'm you know i'm very fortunate uh to have uh, had wonderful things uh i think to be, to be seen as an artist who paints from a standpoint of, of perhaps joy and, and a, um, a love of the tradition, but being very cognizant of the pressures of the present. And I think that's been understood by people writing about my work. Michelle?
2: Stephen, I think that's right. I think you've had the good fortune of having um, pretty uh, – Pretty wonderful. Um, I, it's not really even about being accurate, but really great interpretation, critical interpretation of your work. Um, from my and uh, from my position, um, I, I wish we could. I wish maybe this is a this is a, a problem of criticism, but I think it's not just critics per se or um, criticality, uh, but a relationship to um, where we are within culture. And please don't hear me say that I feel, um, um, compromised, uh, by the limitations. I'm always grateful for any sort of interpretation. And I, I also believe that, you know, the truth will out that if you're in this world and you work for long enough that, um, you know, those things that, uh, you value that you aspire to, um, you know, will make their way forward. uh, but I, I guess I, I in, in, with with a with a with a blush of disappointment, that we're not able to uh, think about. Uh repetition, um, predictability within patterns and be able to translate that into, you know, the issues, uh, you know, of the day or of culture, um, thinking about what sustainability is, predictability, that those things are no longer conservative values, but they're values that, uh, we all want. Um, so, so, so taking, uh, being open to not only visual, uh, languages, um, uh, different kinds of uh, 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 form, but be able to actively interpret those forms instead of, uh, you know, having them linger to some kind of 20th century understanding of, uh, you know, uh, repetitive pattern making. How do we think about repetition right now? So I would like, you know, I guess, uh, you know, more vast, thinking more vastly about um, um, uh, what those things mean as opposed to just Going back to being able to name, oh, uh, you know, again, um, you know, the kitchen and, and thinking about, uh, you know, identity or suburban or mother or those things that are true. Don't get me wrong. Those are all true. And they, uh, you know, shape uh, my condition. But, uh, you know, it's it's taking these things and seeing them, um, uh, deeply, um, uh, philosophically, um, and, uh, you know, through new lenses, but also being prepared to change them and see how they change from day to day, from decade to decade. Um, uh, so that helps us understand obviously uh, the past and the present, but, um, may point to the future too. So, um, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm always grateful for any kind of interpretation. Um, but I would love it to be more vast, um, and even dangerous, quite honestly.
0: Um, yeah thank you so much for your honest and open responses and conversation um it sounds like technology is not going to agree with us any longer so i'm going to just cut us off here we're at our hour and a half anyway just about thank you guys so much um for your time
1: thanks adrian
0: you're listening to the exquisite corpse podcast A few months ago, I sat down to interview Dr. Kelly Morgan about the digital annual exhibition she curated for us this year. She titled it, E Pluribus, Out of Many, after the country's unofficial motto, consciously omitting the word unum or one. We talked about America's preoccupation with unity and the absurdity of holding on to that ideal, heightened by the events of the last couple years. I am struck by the parallels between the interview with Kelly and the conversation between Michelle and Stephen. To read that interview, The Myth of American Unity, visit the episode page on nationalacademy.org. These conversations can be uncomfortable. I've certainly had my fair share of uncomfortable conversations over the past couple of years, which can be more or less so depending on who you're talking to and your relationship to one another. Michelle and Stephen are good friends. And what I find interesting is how they hold space for each other to be self-aware and discover their privilege like being able to focus on issues of abstraction or consider whether the focus of a residency program can assert privilege. In the end, this is what the podcast is for. On the next episode, I have the pleasure of spending time with and learning from two women who share their experiences breaking through barriers, raising children, and making work through different phases of life.
1: Oh, it was really exciting. I mean, I got a call from a friend who said that she knew these two women who were starting a, a sort of a woman's gallery, just all women. And would I be interested, a cooperative gallery? And at that time, I kind of thought, well, co-op galleries are for losers. You know, we don't really want to do that. But then when she said it was going to be all women, I completely changed my mind.
0: Thank you for showing up again. As always, I'm happy to have you here to join me in these conversations. I'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you for listening to Exquisite Corpse from the National Academy of Design. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting art and architecture, and we rely on your support to make programs like this possible. To learn more and to donate, visit nationalacademy.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our summer intern, Leon Caleb Christian, and our programs assistant, Angelique Owens. Our podcast is produced, mixed, and edited by Mike Clemo and Wade Strange at See Through Sound.